When you take a brief survey of the world around you, you might garner any number of ideas about who it is that you are specifically. Some will insist that you are incredible. You're special and unique in all the world. You can do anything and everything to which you set your heart. Perhaps other people are ordinary, sure, but no, not you. You are amazing. <laughs> I knew it was true, yeah. Others will insist that this notion is entirely mistaken. You're actually just the happenstance collision of molecules, and by incredible chance, you experience consciousness and life and beauty and pain. But ultimately, you and everyone you know and the universe itself will be dead and forgotten. Disciples of Jesus of Nazareth believe something else entirely, not the first view and certainly not the second view. There are things that you are, but there are also things that you aren't. Last year, we embarked on a journey to reorient our entire church around the idea of practicing the way of Jesus together. More than any other thing, followers of Jesus are described in the New Testament as this Greek word methetes, or in English, disciples. Another way of translating that word is with the idea of apprenticeship. Following Jesus is not about a magical prayer that you say once. It's not just a system of beliefs nor a code of ethics. To follow Jesus is to enter into a lifelong apprenticeship to a rabbi or a teacher. And the goal of any apprentice, whether a pianist or a plumber or you know, a student of Kung Fu was one of my favorite examples, is threefold. To be with your teacher, to become like your teacher, and to do the things that your teacher does. And yet many churches, including ours for a time, was more arranged like a a lecture hall with songs, uh, more so than like an academy to facilitate apprenticeship. Uh, And if disciples of Jesus, uh, discipleship to Jesus, is in a way like living life underneath a sensei in order to learn kung fu, why do so many of us seem to believe that if we read a book about kung fu or listen to some half-hour you know, TED talk about kung fu, we will suddenly become a black belt? Because discipleship is about training in the way of Jesus. And to do that, one must obviously practice. So at Van City, we appear on the surface in ordinary church. There's, you know, our family and songs of worship and teaching from the scriptures. There's the bread and the cup of communion. But we're also spread out in small groups throughout the city called Van City Communities. And there, 10 or so people gather around a table and share their lives and a meal and actually practice the way of Jesus together. We do that by taking on a new spiritual discipline every few weeks. We took a break for the summer, but now we're back at it. A spiritual discipline is a practice taken from the teachings and the lifestyle of Jesus of Nazareth and then used throughout the history of the church as an instrument for spiritual formation, meaning spiritual disciplines are to the disciple of Jesus what scales are to the pianist or you know what wax on, wax off is to the young student of karate, 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 whatever. Uh, We balance the spiritual discipline. I can't see you guys. I'm going to do this. Eric can deal with that when he gets back up here. Uh, We balance the spiritual disciplines with practices and principles of emotional health because we realize that the more that we work toward spiritual maturity, the more that we will need to work toward emotional maturity. For instance, uh, last year, if you guys were around, you remember, we began with the spiritual discipline well demonstrated throughout the life of Jesus called silence and solitude. And this is, if you can imagine, a difficult practice for many, especially in our modern, frenetic, digitally addicted, sped up, hurried, and overly anxious world. 
And when many finally do enter into that quiet space before God and God shows up and speaks as he is inclined to do, it can be a frightening and difficult things. And all of a sudden stuff is coming up, stuff that you haven't dealt with, stuff that you didn't realize about yourself, about uh, wounds from the past, about the world around you. So next, we work through the principle of emotional health, dealing with your past. Together, the spiritual disciplines and the principles of emotional health work in concert as we walk together the long road of spiritual formation together. That's the idea anyway. So, one by one, we take on a new spiritual discipline or a practice of emotional health. We alternate back and forth as a church family together. We teach on it a bit here on Sundays, and then we gather in our Van City communities to actually give it a shot with the help of a guided curriculum. Now, of course, this hits everyone differently. Some of you guys that have been around and have done this before, you love it. Uh, you, you welcome the challenges and the beauty of spiritual formation. And, and heck, you love having a guided curriculum. That's nice. Uh, others are, are perhaps a bit reticent, and you think, well, I'll give it a shot, and we'll, I'll work with what happens, but I'm not sure about this stuff. And then still others simply refuse, or you flake out, or you remain uninterested, and you sit there every week saying, no, I didn't do anything. And, and I mention that not to pick on you or point you out, but rather to highlight the obvious but often overlooked fact that you are all wired differently. Some of you love it, and some of you hate it, and some of you are indifferent. And often this has to do with your personality, with the way that you're wired. And I'm not talking about the way that, you know, some people like pizza and others don't. I'm talking about the very specific design and architecture of your particular personhood. Why do some prefer rules, weirdos? Uh, while others prefer the, them broken? Why do some love crowds and others prefer quiet? Why do some love art and others prefer logic? And why are some in between those uh, magnetic fields? Why does it matter at all? And I would argue because, listen, like it or not, there is a uniqueness to the way that you are wired to function over and against, say, some other person. This means that as a disciple of Jesus, in order to learn why it is that you tend to sin one way, while other Jesus-centric stuff comes more naturally to you than it does to another person, you must learn who you are and who you are not. This is your identity. On the road of spiritual formation, as you apprentice Jesus, you must discover your identity and calling. And of course, we live during a moment in which, uh, in which much ink has been spilled over your very special, unique uniqueness, you know? Are you an INFJ or an ESFJ? And maybe you're an ISFP or I'm an INTJ. And maybe you're an ENFP. Uh, on a wild day, I behave like an ENFJ. <laughs> <laughs> are you an introvert or an extrovert because if you're an introvert well then you shouldn't have to be around people at all ever you're so special <laughs> Cam told me to go easy on this stuff Myers-Briggs and the disc test and strength finders and what makes oh so special little you oh so special which personality test result is your excuse for being rude or flaky or immature which acronym that some guy made up defines you as a person? They did what? Oh, well, that makes sense. They are a high I. When you talk about so-and-so, you must remember they're about as I as an INFJ gets. These are real things I hear people saying in conversations. Uh, modern personality tests seem to simply encode existing behaviors, validate feelings, and present people with precious little tags to which they can cling and which often become an excuse for sinfulness. Not always, but often that's the case. 
uh, personality tests are seem to be often for people who think themselves too good for a horoscope, you know? And that's not to say that if you're into that sort of thing, you're a dork. My wife loves personality tests all day long with the podcasts and the books. It's the whole thing. Um, and she's great. She's very intelligent. She knows what's going on. In fact, there are aspects of certain tests that I've learned, even as an obvious cynic, that uh, can be massively helpful in spiritual formation. One in particular is called the Enneagram, and we're on our way there with the practices in the coming weeks. But I've noticed, for example, that I don't think I've ever met anyone who hated the results of their personality tests. Because if they did, they would just take it again and get something that they like. They'd say, oh, that doesn't sound like me. Ah, yes, it must have been off the first time because this sounds like me. And this is, of course, not helpful because learning who you are is as much about understanding the particular bent of your brokenness as it is about understanding the ways in which you are uniquely capable of good things. Or to put it bluntly, it is perhaps more important to understand the ways that you tend to be lousy than the ways in which you're special or precious or awesome. There's a good side and a shadow side to the way that you are wired. And the scriptures sometimes call the shadow side the flesh or the old self or the old man. And in order to grow as a disciple of Jesus, to develop spiritual maturity, one must know and understand both things. And people love to learn they are, say, an introvert or an extrovert, but what if that's bad news? What if it's uh, the thing that causes you to sin in a particular way? What if it's part of your shadow side? How many people have you known that seem to chase relentlessly after a person they wanted to be but simply were not and to disastrous ends? How many people have you known who sat on unique gifts and capabilities until they withered and atrophied because they didn't know how to be who they were and everyone could see it but them? How many people have you seen or heard about who are so wonderful, so magnetic, so incredible, but somehow they remain completely oblivious to that one awful crack in their character, not self-aware, and thus unable to do the hard work of growing and maturing against the grain of their shortcomings? How many couples have you seen crash and burn because one or both parties lacked the spiritual and emotional wherewithal to address and deal with their own particular brokenness and the marriage itself becomes collateral damage. And on and on the predictable list unfolds. Vocations that never get off the ground, grown people wandering in circles, people shaped like square pegs, hopelessly driven into circular depressions, parents who echo the shortcomings of their own mothers and fathers dealing with the same emotional damage, distributing it to their children in a cruel and saddening loop again and again and again. Or parents unable to see who their children really are and the whole family languishes in the despair of injustice as a child is made to be someone that they aren't. My point is that the same thing I said moments ago, One crucial task for the apprentice of Jesus is to discover and understand your particular identity and calling. And if this sounds like modern psychobabble or self-help, you may be surprised to learn that the earliest church fathers actually argued the very same thing. In 400 AD, Augustine wrote this, How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Around the 12th century, the Dominican scholar St. Catherine of Siena wrote this, When we are who we are called to be, 
we will set the world ablaze. Around that same time, German theologian Meister Eckert wrote this, No one can know God who does not first know himself. And just to further prove my point, I'll give you a special treat. Uh, I'm going to quote a famous church figure with whom I have very, very little agreement. He's something of like a theological nemesis to me. He's a fellow called John Calvin. And the reason I'll quote him is that Calvin was very famously not self-helpy, not mystic, not Catholic, not flowery to say the least. Uh, and even old John, he wrote, that in his, he wrote this in his giant, infuriating, sleeping pill of a book, Institutes of a Christian Religion. This is actually good. Listen. Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But these are connected together by many ties. It is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. See, even a broke clock, right? Twice a day. My point is that across the spectrum of the Christian tradition, all different types of church fathers and church mothers and writers and pastors and thinkers and theologians from all sorts of different traditions and stripes and theological systems have all argued that it's absolutely crucial for every disciple of Jesus to learn who they are and who they are not. This is nothing new. Um, I have this phenomenal therapist. He's this PhD who's been practicing for many, many, many years. Uh, he's also a Quaker and this amazing disciple of Jesus. And I've been seeing him for a couple of years now, and he's often talking about the level to which I am or am not self-aware. If you've been to therapy, I'm sure you've heard the whole thing. So sometimes I'll like relay a situation to him and tell him how I feel about it. And I'll say, so I felt like this. And I'll say something. He'll go, that's not actually true, is it? And I'll go, no, that's not true at all. That's not how I felt. Uh, you're good, you're good. And then other times I'll say, I don't think this makes any sense. I don't even know what I think about the situation, but here's how I feel, and I'll describe it. And he'll say, you actually put it perfectly. You're tremendously self-aware on this particular thing. Uh, because self-awareness is really important. Pete Scazzaro talks about self-awareness this way. The vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We are unconsciously, we unconsciously live someone else's life or at least someone else's expectations for us. This does violence to ourselves, our relationship with God, and ultimately to others. So if all this sounds like a new idea to you or perhaps you feel a bit skeptical, then please bear with me because the stakes, I would argue, are actually quite high. Much of your uh, failure, and we all fail, uh, as a friend or as a spouse or as a parent or as a professional, whatever it might be, so often it has to do with your effort to be someone you are not. When you're not sure who you are, you often work to be someone that you are not. The horrible parade of desperation that is your Instagram feed, you know, a sad, disingenuous clamoring for approval uh, from uninterested slaves who are just zombified, scrolling through a never-ending rat drip of utter uselessness. So much of it, too much... Sorry, sorry. Thanks, Kristen. She's always on so, yeah, still there. I'll ask you beforehand next time. So much of it, I would argue, and you probably know this already, uh, it are simply people unsure of who they are, and so they take little pictures and forever shackled to the approval of someone else. Maybe if someone approves of me, that's who I'm supposed to be. The dissatisfaction that so many of us feel with all that we haven't done yet or all that we feel like we should be doing, we haven't yet learned what it is that we're meant to do and what it is you are not meant to do takes its place. So you wander aimlessly and the world misses what you actually have to offer. 
But the opposite of all this is, actually, is also true. When you discover your identity, when you understand who it is that you have been called to be, you no longer attempt to be someone you are not, at least not on your best day. You no longer scramble for the approval of others because you know who you are. You no longer languish in confusion or inactivity because you know what you're supposed to be doing. Or to repeat St. Catherine's or St. Catherine of Siena, when we are called, when we are who we are called to be, we will set the world ablaze. And because, listen to me, this is not a self-help thing. This is about spiritual formation. The three lifelong goals of every disciple of Jesus are to be with Jesus. And what's the second one? Oh, thank God. Thank God. I was so scared to ask that question. I was like, it'll just make the whole last year for naught. Great job, everyone, to become like Jesus. But there's actually an interesting dynamic to our becoming like Jesus that we rarely discuss. And it seems really obvious, but few of us actually take the time to consider it. You will not become like Jesus in every way possible, and that's okay. Uh, to cite the easiest examples, Jesus was a man. That's trouble for half of you. Uh, he was a Galilean Jew in the ancient Near East. That's trouble for all of us. Uh, because many of you aren't dudes, well done. Uh, most of us, I venture a guess, are probably not Jewish. None of us share Jesus' ethnicity, unless I missed something. Um, Jesus was single. Many of us aren't. Jesus was, we think, a stonemason by trade. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure any of you are. If you are, that's pretty cool. Um, and all that's okay, because the role of the disciple is to become like Jesus. The good, God-designed aspects of your unique identity will remain intact, while the negative, unique darkness of your wiring and your story are slowly done away with. So, to borrow from the ideology of the once popular uh, WWJD bracelets, if you've been around in the Christian culture for a while, if not, just count your blessings and ignore what I'm about to say. Uh, what would Jesus do? Uh, I think uh, it's actually a, a great question, great sentiment, not so bad. The monetization thing, you know, that's a little weird. But uh, the question might be more appropriately asked, what would Jesus do if he were you? That is, what would Jesus do if he were a mom? Because obviously he was not. What would Jesus do if he was a grocery store clerk or a student or a single woman or a grandpa or an accountant or an artist and on down the list? On the road of spiritual formation, your character is being made over in the shape of your teacher, but the unique way in which God has shaped you is becoming clearer all the time. I often hear this strange sentiment in the church about working to make oneself vanish, like you just disappear into oblivion. This idea is probably born from uh, what I would argue is a, a mistaken reading of John the Baptist who famously said, he must become greater, I must become less, which is beautiful. But in context, John was actually talking about the role of Jesus as the awaited Messiah over and against the role of who he had been called to be, which was someone who prepared the way for the Messiah. So he was naturally designed to step into the background as Jesus took his place. More on that in a bit. You becoming less has nothing to do with you becoming less you. You're actually supposed to become more you as you apprentice Jesus. So to unpack this idea further, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, if you don't mind. Matthew chapter 3. This is something that we've already read. We're about to read it again because we're studying Matthew on the side, just in case you're new here. Context is important. Matthew chapter 3, when you get there, let's read beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. One uh, well-worn debate of New Testament scholarship is when exactly did Jesus realize and understand that he was the Son of God? Some argue Jesus may have known this as early as age 12. You know, there's this interesting story when Jesus as a young boy uh, lingered in the temple and he said that he did it in order to be in his father's house. But others argue it could have been at this moment, we've just read, that may have been when Jesus' identity was first truly clear to him. Who knows? Either way, The important thing is this is a moment of crucial importance in the life of Jesus and in the solidifying of his true identity. Now, many of us read the term son of God as uh, primarily a familial type thing. You know, God is the dad, Jesus is the son, and that's true. Uh, But more than that, the term was actually a specific title. In the Old Testament, son of God was a moniker used to describe the Messiah, the long-awaited saving king of Israel. So yes, this is a statement about Jesus' relationship to the Father, but it's also a statement about who Jesus is meant to be. Because fastened to the title itself, son of God, is the role the one who bears the title is meant to play. The son of God will rescue Israel and bring about God's kingdom. It's who he is. But then things take a turn. Matthew chapter 4, let's keep reading. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That seems abrupt. Here we go. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, the devil said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Now, we've already actually taught on this passage in our ongoing series in Matthew, but tonight I want you to notice that the devil tempts Jesus with an ongoing motif of sin, and that is to be other than who he is called to be. Making bread and performing miracles and really uh, even accepting the mantle of king are all in and of themselves not bad things. Jesus goes on to do all those things. But here, the devil is offering him to take a route contrary to the one which Jesus has been called. That is the temptation. And remember, God has just spoken over Jesus. This is my son. And what are the first words from Satan's mouth? If, thank you, if you are the son of God. And such a temptation is actually not unique to Jesus. Turn over to John chapter 1. There's four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Turn over there if you don't mind, and let's read beginning in chapter 1, verse 19, when you make it there. John 1, 19. Now this was John, John the Baptist's testimony when the Jewish leaders in in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess and confess freely. John the Baptist says, 
I'm not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, nope. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This is perhaps one of the clearest examples in the New Testament story of someone tremendously aware of who they are and who they are not. John the baptizer knows full well who he has been designed to be, and he understands with great clarity the implications for who he is not called to be. And both are of equal importance. Saying yes to your identity and calling means saying no to a great plethora of other identities, other callings that you are not designed to carry. And some of them are probably great, but they're not for you. Turn with me just one more time back to the Gospel of Matthew. Yes, we're going back and forth. It's for a reason. One more time back to Matthew. And let's read from chapter 16. Matthew 16, when you get there, let's read beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's one of Jesus' names for himself. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus, in the story, he asks those closest to him, hey, what's the word on the street? What, what do folks think that I'm doing here? Who do they think I am exactly? And they seem to sort of like shrug and say, ah, well, you know, the jury's out. They don't seem to agree. Some think that you're John, which is weird because he was over there. Others think you're Elijah or Jeremiah or some other dead prophet who's come back to life. And the story goes on. Read verse 15. Jesus gets a little more direct. What about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I will tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Uh, in Greek, the word or the name Peter is Petros. It actually means the rock. <laughs> it's a name. Before one, there was the other, you know. Uh, but this one is different, obviously. Jesus used... <laughs> uh, that was worth it. A few chuckles were worth it. Jesus uses both Peter's name and he references an actual rock to make this interesting sort of pun. You are Petros, and on this Petra, rock, I will build my church. Jesus is speaking Peter's identity and calling over him. Now, if you know the story... Peter's journey to get to where he actually understands and realizes his identity calling is, is a lot like many of ours. It's clumsy, it's awkward, it's riddled with mistakes and wrong turns, and that's having Jesus himself speak it out loud over you, so you're in good company. But ultimately, Peter does understand who he is, and he fulfills his unique role in God's kingdom. The point I'm getting at tonight is that whether it's Peter or John or even Jesus himself, the journey to discover who we are is one we are all meant to take. 
And we forego said journey at enormous personal expense and really at enormous expense to the world around us. Because imagine, for example, if John or Peter or Jesus had not learned or fulfilled who they were and who they were meant to be. And I suspect this news hits many of you quite differently. And that it stands to reason that we are all over the map in our journey to know who the heck we are and what the heck we're doing here. Uh, When we were working out this practice with our friends and collaborators over at Bridgetown Church in Portland, we applied this framework, which is itself adapted from the work of Dr. Bobby Clinton, in particular a book he wrote called The Making of a Leader. And he argued that this paradigm tends to fit many. It's not an exact science, but many of you will find this resonating or some version of this resonating. The journey begins with the sacred foundation, and these things, I'm afraid, cannot be helped. The family into which you're born, your social and economic standing, you know, your gender, the surrounding time and culture, even, even certain dimensions of your personality that are inborn. You don't pick any of that stuff, but it factors largely in your identity. And next comes discovery. For many of us, this is a complicated and often chaotic season of trial and error, success and failure as you learn and grow and you struggle with who we are and against who we are not. Someone might speak a prophetic word over your life that takes years to come to fruition or for you to understand. Uh, You try things, some things line up, other things crash and burn. Sometimes you do stuff and people say, wow, you should do more of that. And other times you do stuff and people are like, no, never again, please, never again, that thing that you just did. And in theory, all through this process, the fog surrounding who it is that you truly are has begun to dissipate. And that's followed by stepping out. This is when you pursue a job or you chase a dream or you you start a nonprofit or you begin an education or you write a book or you move somewhere or you record an album or you begin a family, you know, whatever it is that you've been called to do. And the next part is getting good. Uh, This gentleman called Malcolm Gladwell argued after tremendous research, the bumming uh, data seemed to suggest that it takes about 10,000 hours to get really good at any given thing. Uh, That's about 10 years of your life, give or take, to master your craft or excel in your calling or to become really, really, really good at something. Uh, And that seems to apply to most things. For example, uh, Abby and I will have been married for 10 years in a couple of weeks. And it honestly feels like, I'm not about to say that we just mastered it, not at all. But it does, I can see on the trajectory of our 10 years together, it feels like we went from like breezy and effortless for years and years to challenged and trying and learning to sort out who she is over and against who I am, um, to like struggling and despairing and then back and forth again. And then now, as we approach the 10-year mark, it seems like we're finally coming out the other side and seeing what it might look like to thrive joyfully on the horizon. And there will still be complications and hiccups, of course, but we're figuring out who we are and how to live together. It's complicated. Uh, And then next might come something that uh, he argued was The Wall. And it's, it's not the Pink Floyd album, arguably the greatest uh, prog concept album of all time. But this is something of a crisis. You know, uh, it's a moment in which your identity, your calling is brought low and everything that seemed so precious to you uh, years before, even moments ago, no longer glitters. And you don't know who you are or what you're doing or why you're there. You hit bottom and you ask these questions that you were asking way, way back in the process. What, what is this? And who am I? And how did I end up here? And the wall is different from everything else in that it's not a stage. It's a moment in time or a season of life. 
It can come at any point in the timeline, not necessarily right there. Uh, really, for most of us, it, it tends to come more than once. Uh, whether you're young or old, you don't have to be like an expert. You don't have to have tons of life experience to hit the wall. It could happen to you as a young person. Um, and many arrive at this moment, the wall, and then we stop. Or we turn back and regress. But if you scale the wall, if you power through, if you knock it down, however you wanted to use the language, you will be refined. And you will carry on humbled with even more clarity than before, further stripped of pretense and apprehension, a long journey ahead still, but your identity and calling have come that much more into focus. You made it and you're still going. The false self is being shed and the true self is taking shape. And next comes staying faithful and fruitful. At this point, uh, many tend to be in their 30s or 40s. Uh, much of youth's naivete, not all of it, but much of it has fallen away. Now you know what disappointment feels like and regret and weariness. And now you have to pay bills and raise a family and you get tired and your back hurts. Uh, but if you persist in the knowledge of your identity and calling, these can be the most productive, most fruitful years of your life. And then finally comes ending well. Because, uh, just to let you guys know, on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. You, you and everyone you know, I'm sorry to say, will die. Uh, and many lives enjoy this journey. They go through this whole process and then do not end well. Stumble at the finish line and things go miserably. And you can, you know, look to just the news around you to think of any number of examples of this uh, happening in the world right now. Recently, I watched this conversation between uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Stephen Colbert, two famous comedians who had you know innumerable stories to share about. Remember this club and remember this and what was? They asked each other, "What was the record for you?" Or what was? The, who was the comedian that first lit that spark into love comedy, to love stand up? And both of them said that the comedian who had most inspired them had been Bill Cosby. And Colbert lamented the fact that Cosby's work had been ruined for him personally. Cosby's calling as a comedian, though it had given Colbert joy in times of great tragedy in his life as a child, he said he used to put on those records, drop the needle at any point in a Bill Cosby record, and it would give him comfort and solace. That laughter had been marred by Cosby's decimated legacy. And all the success and hard work and legacy crumbles at the finish line because ultimately the character that you steward will overflow. It will catch up to you and it will step out of the shadows whether you'd like it to or not. In fact, Dr. Clinton, who designed this timeline based on his research, observed that when you read the Bible, the vast majority of the characters in the Bible do not end well. But that doesn't mean that that has to be your story. Because if you do indeed well, that's not the end. Uh, there comes a final stage called afterglow. And as I was thinking of, you know, this, I, I'm obviously not there yet myself. So I was trying to think of like, man, where have I seen this? And I didn't have to think for more than a second. My father-in-law, Denny, who uh, many of you know, he's often sitting right over there somewhere alongside my mother-in-law, Lynette. Denny has this like gnarly story of growing up in California before he met Jesus during the Jesus movement of the 70s. Uh, he eventually became a pastor at Calvary Chapel, Vancouver. He was there for like a decade before he was the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Woodland for almost as long. Um, he's been married for almost 40 years now. He has four kids, all of whom are following Jesus to this day. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. 
And now he has liver cancer, and he's at home experiencing the early stages of liver failure right now. And of course, his family is wrecked. This, we're living in the tension of God's desire to heal and the reality of a world that has been ravaged by the fall. It's, it's a horrible, horrible, trying time of suffering and grief. But I mention all of this for a reason. Because, uh, of course, Denny's story is like ours. If you ask the guy, he's very forthcoming. He's riddled with mistakes and pitfalls before Jesus and after Jesus, imperfections from the ground up. But I sat in a church last week uh, in Woodland, Calvary Chapel, his church, and he delivered what could be his last sermon. And he smiled and he was full of faith and he was surrounded by this room full of people to whom he has been a pastor and a leader and a brother and a father in the faith. And now they're coming to his house day by day to sit with him and thank him and to witness his great faith even in suffering firsthand. Not a perfect dude by any means, but he is ending well and those who love him come to see the afterglow and to experience it firsthand. You don't have to have it all together to end well. Sadly, few people reach this stage, but all of us can given the opportunity with enough years. Now, this is, of course, again, not a one-size-fits-all map of every single life. It's a tool based on research that indicates that many of us will experience a trajectory that might look something like this. Maybe yours will look exactly like that. Maybe yours is like a mix-match of it. I don't know. But how you accomplish your particular version is really up to you. The apprentice of Jesus is called to take a certain route what Jesus called the narrow road. And on that road, you make the journey of self-discovery, self-awareness, and self-mastery. And if you walk this road, God himself will be your guide. You don't go by yourself. There's a reason that God is constantly called the good shepherd in the scriptures. And there are tools to help you along the way. You don't have to just go it blindly, stumble along through pure trial and error. There are resources that the church has used for centuries to keep you from stumbling along the path of learning who you are, of keeping God before you at all times, of seeing him and following him well. And that is why we are taking on this practice together, that you may go on this journey with the Spirit of God and in your community alongside the family of God. That is, after all, how discipleship is done. And no, you will not achieve total self-awareness in the weeks ahead, but the idea is that you would begin a lifelong journey. This week, your community will gather around a table, I hope, I mean, or whatever it looks like for you guys, enjoy dinner, catch up, and then you will go to practicingtheway.org. Um, to get back in the swing of the practices, we have two very simple exercises for you this week, so don't be intimidated. First, you'll simply find your story in the timeline that we just discussed. You'll look at it together and try to figure out where it is that you might be. It may not fit with exact specificity, that's fine, but chances are some version of it will line up. Find out where you are and then talk about it with your community. Next, we have something called the scale of differentiation that may help you learn more about your current emotional state. It's not a box. Again, uh, believe me, I'm, I'm quite cynical about those things. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's a tool that may prove helpful. So we ask that you just keep an open mind and simply give it a shot uh, together with your community. If you're not yet in a community or you're, you know, you're listening to this podcast in the future, um, then by all means, get together a couple of friends or if you're you know, in a house church or a small group or whatever it might be, 
you can still do the practices, and we encourage you to go to practicingtheway.org and get started. Because there is a person that you are, and there are many people that you are not. You are not your mentor. You are not your hero, um, unfortunately. You're not your parents or your best friend. You're not your job or your Instagram alter ego. You're not your paycheck or your wardrobe. This practice is about working with the Spirit of God to pull back the veneer and to shed the skin of every false self, the ones knowingly worn and the ones you wear subconsciously, so that Jesus can say, ah, there you are. Now, follow me.